So Mark uh, 15, and we'll start at verse 42. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were dead already, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses beheld where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, And he said, as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they were trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had not seen, been seen of her, believed not, and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So far. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we come before you and we, uh, we thank you for the word and as we now uh, seek to understand it more, to reflect more on the resurrection, upon what it means, the implications for our lives and the, the glory that we ought to ascribe to your name on account of your triumph, on account of your mighty deeds. Lord, I pray that we would do that and that you would, um, through your spirit, give us faith to see and to, uh, to trust in what you have given unto us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to kind of walk through uh, these sets of verses that I brought, uh, that we read this morning. And um, they're all kind of centered on this theme that many people disbelieve the concept of a resurrection. We live in a culture that discards it, that mocks it. 
And um, you'll see as we unpack Mark that everything about the gospel witness is the truth, the veracity of the resurrection. And so one of the excuses people give to deny the resurrection would be, well, Jesus um, didn't really die, so he faked it. There's different excuses that people give with respect to that. So in our text, we first of all find in uh, verses 40, uh, 42 through 44 that um, the time is very close to the Sabbath. We are now at uh, Friday uh, 6 p.m. The Sabbath would begin. And um, Pilate has authorized Jesus' crucifixion. And he also has authority over the body of Jesus. Archaeology has shown that normally crucified bodies were not buried. But here Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable and a wealthy man, boldly requests the body of Jesus. We've got to stand still and think about that. It was still a very brave thing for him to go and request the body of a convicted criminal. We see the hand of God in this, don't we? Because unknowingly, Joseph of Arimathea fulfills biblical prophecy. Remember, uh, we read on Friday, Isaiah 53, where it says, And he made his grave with the wicked. Again, the wicked there referring to the fact that he died with criminals. But the next part of that verse in Isaiah 53, 9 says this, And with the rich in his death. That is because he got the death, the burial, sorry, of a rich man, of an honorable man, and that is all because of the sovereignty of God in bringing Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, to this position. So after being summoned to check on Jesus' status, whether he was really dead, the centurion reports back. Now you've got to remember, a centurion is a man over a hundred, and he reports directly to Pilate here. This guy was an expert in death. Roman soldiers knew how to kill, and if you were a centurion, you were one of the top of the game of killing. And so he gives the nod and says, yes, he's dead. That is another example, little detail that we're given by Mark to show the truth, the veracity of the death of Christ. There was no forgery here. Jesus was not merely unconscious. He wasn't in a coma. This Roman soldier said he was dead. The Roman Empire has crucified thousands of people during its centuries of power. In fact, at the fall of Jerusalem, this is a staggering number. Roman troops crucified as many as 500 Jews a day for months. The entire city was surrounded by crosses that they ran out of wood to crucify these people on. And there is no evidence anywhere in history that anyone ever survived a crucifixion. We see the body then gets handed to Joseph, who then puts it in a tomb. This means that Joseph himself also handled the body. He handled the corpse, another witness to the death of Christ. You see, the the death of Jesus Christ is vital to our faith because the Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And it says the wages of sin is death. Although Jesus never sinned, and we reflected on that on Friday, yet our sins were imputed or accounted unto him. And therefore, the unblemished Lamb of God became dark with sin, and taking our sin on him, he had to die. It was necessary that he died. And Jesus didn't just pay the penalty of our sins halfway. 
He drank the dregs of the wrath of God in the full. He paid the price completely. He bore the curse to the end. And therefore, he had to die. Christianity is simply not true if Jesus didn't die. And that is why it is part of the Apostles' Creed. He died and was buried. Have you considered what the death of Christ then means? It means for us believers that the wrath of God was absorbed fully in him. And I know we're also prone to to go back and want to smuggle in a little bit of our own righteousness. We almost think we have to do like a mop-up mission and clean up the, the vestiges that maybe we later sinned or things that weren't quite cleaned up in, in the death of Christ. And in our pride, we're so prone to want to contribute something to our salvation. You watch when you're in despair about sin. Often it's because we don't trust in the death of Christ at that moment. And we want to add a little bit in. And as the Bible says, God forbid... May never be that way for us. And so take courage in this death of Christ. Let us remember that we can rest humbly, completely, and thankfully in Christ's finished death. He said on the cross, it is finished. Verses 46 to 16, verse 1. Mark connects... What is coming, the resurrection, with what is past. Notice in 1542, where it talks about the Sabbath. Everything here is pivoting around the Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath, in verse 42, and then in verse 16, verse 1, it says, And when the Sabbath was past. So we've got the third day here. The account is a whole, and Mark weaves it together as one continuous thread. And that is why the early Christian creed that we read this morning together says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And Mark is validating that early creed, that early confession, And so the question for us is, when you share the gospel with a friend, with a co-worker, with your neighbor, do you speak of the whole account? A lot of people only talk of either the death of Christ or either the resurrection of Christ. Do we talk about the whole thing? Don't rush past the cross. Don't ignore the tomb. Don't marginalize the resurrection. Tell the whole gospel. Tell it all. Expound on it. Would you be able to expound on the need for all three of those aspects? If someone were to ask you, So why did he die? Why was he buried? Could you answer that? Was it necessary that he was buried? What does that mean? What does the resurrection all imply? And what does it tell us? There is so much packaged in that central creed, in that account. Now notice Mark specifically calls attention to the women witnessing three pivotal events. Looking back at verse 40, which we didn't read, but look there, it's just after the centurion has cried out, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark notes this, there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, uh, and of Joses and Salome. So they get mentioned there. Verse 47, and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses beheld 
where he was laid. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, they get mentioned again. They see this whole thing, and that is not a mistake. Mark is telling us something by noting their names at all three events. Now, if anyone was making up a resurrection in that culture, there's no way they would mention women, especially their names, because they could be investigated and it would be slanderous to mention their names. In fact, 200 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a pagan named Celsus, he still ridiculed the gospel and the account of the resurrection, and he says it an account of gossip of women about an empty tomb. So Mark adding this is very peculiar. It's, it's risky almost. It's not popular. But Mark sticks with the facts. He doesn't shy away from them, even if it isn't culturally popular. Now why would God have it so? What's he doing in doing it this way? I think he's drawing us right back to creation. Because in creation, it was Eve that was deceived first just after the serpent came to her. And it was Eve who would hear, she would accuse the serpent, and then God would say to the serpent, note these words, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And now, in this text, it would be these daughters of Eve who would be the first to witness the beginning of a new creation. They were there at the fall, first deceived of the first creation, and they would witness this great new redemptive creation. One commentator, James Edwards, says this. He says, The testimony of women is entirely in character with the divine economy, with God's ways. Those whose testimony is discounted in human society, as women's were, are the first to be included in the divine society of the new creation. It's really amazing, isn't it? How God has all these divine reversals throughout Scripture. It wouldn't be the Roman officials who would first witness this. In fact, we know from Matthew's account, they were scared away when the angels came. It wouldn't be the religious leaders, the ones we would expect. Certainly, they could check it with the scriptures. They would not have their unbelief squashed in the first witnessing of the gospel resurrection. Even the disciples would not be the first to see this thing. This is the pattern of history, the pattern really of his story, God's story. God says this in 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And we must remember that. It's amazing. And so sharing the gospel is not about a popular message. We are not called to make it likable and cool, to adapt it to what's accepted in our culture. We are simply called, as Mark was doing as well, to be ambassadors of God's truth to the world, to be faithful to Scripture. And so when you're mocked, when you're maligned, when people ridicule the Scriptures, hold fast to the Word as God has revealed it to us. Now notice these women brought spices. They'd probably purchased these spices when the Sabbath was over at 6 p.m. sometime thereafter or early Sunday morning. Normally, bodies would be anointed with oil and rinsed with water before burial. Now, 
we don't see this here as much, a little bit. We see that in verse 46 that Joseph bought fine linen and took them down. But there's no mention of spices. But in John 19.39, it does tell us that Joseph and Nicodemus had already anointed the body. But because these women probably did not know these high-ranking Jews, these Judean men, they wanted to do it themselves as well in an act of devotion because you would spice and embalm a body so that the stench of decay would be masked, the corruption of death. Now Mark is not contradicting John, but he omits the detail of Joseph anointing the body because he's focusing on different details here. These ordinary women loved Jesus that much that they would risk going to the tomb of a rich leader and they would risk opening this tomb up because of their love for Jesus Christ. They would risk anointing the body of a condemned criminal, the scandal of the religious leaders, someone who was scorned and mocked by the crowds, and still they went. There's really quite a testimony in what these women do. Would you do that? Is your love for Christ, is our love for Christ that great that we are willing to risk things for him? Are you willing to do the hard things for the Jesus you confess? Because you seek to honor his name, to mention him when it's hard at work, when it's hard at the street, when it's hard at the grocery checkout aisle, when somebody takes the Lord's name in vain. Are you willing to say something? What is striking about this whole anointing of the body of Jesus is we know two chapters before, in chapter 14, Jesus' body was already anointed before he died. Remember that account? Two days before his crucifixion, Mark records this. It says, And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he sat at meat. And there came a woman, again a woman, having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And then Jesus will later say this about her. She hath done what she could. She is come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. He hadn't even died yet. This was reverse, another divine reversal. Normally, if you think about it, common criminals that were crucified would be thrown to the dogs or cast into a common grave. But the anointing that Jesus got before he died was a preparation for his burial with dignity. Because he is the prince. He is divine. He is royal. And so Jesus got anointed while he's in life, anticipating that royal death, the death of a royal one. Now it's interesting because now these women coming later, wanted to anoint him whose body could not see corruption. Remember, Peter says that later in Acts 2. He says, his body cannot see corruption. Now, we see the hand of God in this because from the beginning, God was showing his purpose. Corruption would never take hold of the body, would it? These women wouldn't have the chance to put the spices on it because by the time they get there, it's too late. There would be no smell of death. There would be no stink and decay because Jesus would rise again. 
And so in verses 2 and 3, we see now the Sabbath is over. We see a new week beginning, which is so emblematic of new creation, new beginnings. It's amazing how all of this fits together in God's redemptive plan. Remember, it said in the text very carefully, a stone was rolled in front of it, right, in verse 46. And then in this verse, verse 3, you see, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And it says in verse 4, for it was very great. And why would they roll stones in front of tombs? Well, in that culture, they would seal it up and they would leave a body in there for a year. It would rot and decay and all that would be left would be bones. And then they would open the tomb and they would take the bones and put it into a box called an ossuary. And there they would leave it, and then they would, that would be the, the final resting place of those bones. And strikingly, in archaeology recently, they found most likely the bones of James, really interesting, in an ossuary. It was marked with the name. But these women come to this tomb, so they're going to go against culture because of their devotion. This stone, again, is so big that it would take several strong men to roll back the stone. Now, when the women left to go to this tomb, they were probably not aware of the Roman guard. In fact, Mark doesn't even record the Roman guard. We know that again from Matthew. But he does record the question, who will remove the stone? And he's the only one who mentions the question, who will remove the stone? Because he wants his Gentile audience to understand Jewish burial practice. Access would be difficult And any Gentile then that would say, oh, the body was just stolen. No way. No way could these women roll away this massive stone and steal the body. They probably had hoped to find some workers in the area. And this whole conversation, when they say to themselves, who shall roll us away the stone, again emphasizes that Mark is dismissing The fact that they had any expectation of a resurrection. They did not anticipate a resurrection. Otherwise, they wouldn't say that. It wouldn't make any sense. And you think about what this all means. We we all know what it's like to go to a funeral. Perhaps you've been at one within the last year. It's all we know when people die, that they get buried. They pass from this earth and we see them no more. From a human perspective, just like these women would have it. Death is an end. People speak of death as a time afterwards. We need closure. After a long period of grief, we need to move on, people will say. And so this, whole, this world is bent on the idea of dismissing a resurrection. Death, in our eyes, is final. Because we're fixated simply on what we see. Keep that in mind on what we see. That's going to come back. When you tell others about Jesus' resurrection, we shouldn't be surprised that they're perplexed, that they mock it, because even Jesus' closest followers, who were told he would rise again, they didn't believe it. And they were so wrong. And the world is so wrong, isn't it? And what we read of next in verses 4 and 5 is shocking. It is worldview shattering. It is history changing reality. And Mark wants us to see it with that. That's why all these breadcrumbs of the narrative are dropped for us. Verses 4 and 5, they see a young man clothed in white. Now we know this describes an angel. 
And notice the small detail on the right side. It just further proves the genuineness of the account because fabricators don't include that kind of detail when they're making up these accounts. They would rush by that kind of detail. The women's response, it is said to be affrighted. Ex thumbeo in the Greek, used only once here. And in the next verse, when the angel says, don't be affrighted, the word means to be struck with amazement, to be thoroughly amazed, to be astounded. You can just imagine the feeling of intense fear these women would have. You can't fake that fear. They were trembling. For those who say, well, the resurrection is just a hallucination of the women and of the disciples, they can't make sense because this was a whole group then that would have to be hallucinating. And you don't get group hallucinations like this very quickly at all. When we see a stone rolled back, when we see an encounter with the angel, as the narrative tells us, and a missing body, it makes much more sense to speak of a resurrection. For so many people, much of the Bible is just a story. You grow up with the stories. Have you heard the story of this? Have you heard the story of that? Have you heard the story of the resurrection? Maybe you've grown up with Easter all your life. But for you, it's never sunk in. The Bible is clear. This has happened. It has happened. Let that sink in. This is true. You know, we're so quick to doubt what the Bible says. We, we become skeptics at some level about prophecy, about the promises. Oh, we won't admit it. But we live that way. And we smuggle in unbelief. And the Bible is clear. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He will finish what He has set out to do. Trust it. Expect it. Verses 6. The angel again says, Don't be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Interesting that he would say it this way. Watch the language. Jesus of Nazareth. It shows that specific name of the man who was from Nazareth. The man that they all knew. The man that they walked with. We're not talking in Christianity about a mystical Jesus. We are believing in the one who walked the streets of Nazareth. And the Jesus of the empty tomb is the same Jesus that they knew. The same one they also knew and saw as crucified. The question is clear. Did you come here expecting that Jesus of Nazareth to still be dead? Did you come expecting a corpse? And they did. They expected a dead man. And that's how many people approach the story of Jesus of Nazareth. I was talking about this with somebody not too long ago. Who is Jesus? Do you believe he really existed? Well, maybe, but the whole resurrection made up. For many, Jesus is just a moral teacher who once lived a good life, but now he's dead like everybody else, like Muhammad, like the Buddha, like everyone else. These teachers die, and that's the end of them. What do you expect from Christianity? What are your expectations as you read the word of God? What are your expectations of scripture, of Christ? The apostle Paul says what he expects of Christ is everything. In fact, he says about the resurrection, he counts everything in his life, all he had achieved as dung, that he may win who? The resurrected Christ. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings be made, being made conformable unto his death. And then he says these staggering words, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The Jesus we love is not a corpse. 
Christianity is not the faith of a bunch of dull and dead creeds, things you just grow up with. For the believer, and this will be the litmus test of our faith, moving from mental knowledge to heart reality, for the believer, we are united by faith to the living Christ. We know him, we love him, we cherish the person, not just the facts. It's not just about facts. And that's why the angel now, this is interesting as well, says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. Because up until then, everybody that knew Jesus could talk about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the good teacher, Jesus, the rabbi. But now, from that time on, he would also be known as Jesus, the crucified one. That was added because redemptive history propelled forward and that is crazy if you think about it because the apostle paul says these almost shocking words can you imagine going in roman culture remember we saw just how many crucifixions took place at the fall of jerusalem that many and to say as paul would say god forbid that i should glory save in the cross of our lord jesus christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and i unto the world or paul would say for i determined to know nothing among you save jesus christ and him crucified to speak of somebody that would die and everybody knew what this thing was this instrument of torture and it becomes the center of our faith there is no relationship with god outside of that cross there is no faith without the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's so easily that the pressures and the worries of life cloud our lives from living under the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've had that. Maybe the daily grind of life, perhaps it's the complexities of life that the Lord is providentially putting in your path right now. They're they're starting to make you lose your focus on the centrality of living for Jesus The centerpiece of history happened at his resurrection and at his death and resurrection. Maybe you've seen the book, How Then Shall We Live, Charles Coulson. I've got another book on my shelf. How then shall we work? Well, how then shall we parent? How then shall we think? How then shall we go about our daily lives? All that then centers on is the cross, the resurrection, The centerpiece of history. In fact, the apostles understand this, that the question of how then shall we live is such an important question because Peter will go on in 1 Peter, or it's not 1 Peter, in in Acts 3.21, and he says this, the new creation ushered in at the resurrection leads to the restitution of all things. Paul would even go further Because Paul takes the question of how then, in light of the crucifixion, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, the question of how then we shall live. And we read it this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says that we our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Think about that. That when we labor for the kingdom in light of the cross, that begets eternal kingdom fruit it is not as though christians say this okay jesus died jesus rose again believe that and you'll be saved and then wait for him to come back 
And that in the swath of time in between, the question of how then shall we live has no eternal bearing. You better believe it does. It affects our work. It affects our thinking. It affects our lives. And Paul saying it is not in vain means that it matters for eternity. So the resurrection propels us to answer that question. The angel goes on and says he is risen. That's three words in English, one in Greek, and it determines everything. The angels, interesting, because who announced the birth of Jesus? Angels. Who is announcing the resurrection of Jesus? The angels. The messengers of who? God. God's messengers. Why? Because it's God's message. It's his message to the world. It's not the world's discovery. It's God's message that will announce it authoritatively, that will settle it. We announce him. Theologians may wrestle with it. We have a society of speculation, hypotheses, and theories. But here, the message is so simple, a child can understand it. The gospel is for the young, it is for the old, it is something that everybody can understand. He died and rose again. You know, when you think about resurrection, it is staggering. Because up until that point, millions upon millions of people had died. And their bodies were in the grave, rotten and decaying. Even Lazarus, who not far from this place had been risen from the dead. Remember? Behold, Lord, he stinketh. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And he came forth, wound in the linen. He would die again. But this Jesus, the Bible tells us in Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, Behold, and I am al- Behold, I live, and I am alive forevermore. Death will not ever again be part of the new creational life that Jesus gives. And that should bring us joy. You know, think about that joy. You know, when, uh, when you look at a hockey game, particularly when it's World Cup or the Olympics, it's the last game, and it's Team Canada up against whatever team, Team USA, and they score the winning goal. The nation erupts for the gold medal. And it's all about chasing a piece of rubber and shooting it into a piece of mesh. And the world is so excited for that. And we get excited for that. It's piddly. It's piddly. Can you imagine, to up that a little bit, World War II, the streets of the occupied countries, the soldiers that had been bleeding and dying, and the announcement is that it is over the war has ended, the axes have surrendered unconditionally. We've seen the videos of that. The joy that is, the people dancing through the streets. The war is over. That's significant. Because it was costing lives. It was costing horrendous suffering. But take that and up the significance as high as we can imagine. The shock, the joy, the triumph of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is greater than all of them put together. There's nothing on earth that can compare with the triumph of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've stood at a graveside of a loved one and that wound may still be raw for you. The Bible says death is an enemy. It is the gate of eternal significance because you'll go either way. A death, but for the believer, 
The Bible tells us that to die now is what? It's gain. It's gain. The Apostle Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain because this new age has begun. Jesus perfectly fulfilled what the first Adam did not fulfill, where he failed. Remember, he was to be a prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, the great master teacher, fulfills the office of prophet. Jesus, the great priest, offers himself as the suffering lamb. And now in his resurrection, Jesus, the great king, rises in triumph over the dead. The text goes on and it says, Behold where they lay him. This is again an invitation for them to eyewitness. Remember the eyewitness account. The main point here is clear. Behold where they lay him because you expected a body. A body was laying in the grave and a body rose. A lot of people turn Christianity into some sort of spiritual resurrection. As if Jesus rose spiritually. Not so. This is a resurrection of the body. And the women were asked to look inside and to look for the corpse. To look for it. Well, not the corpse. To look if there was still a body there. And it wasn't there. So the angel goes on and he says, But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. Interesting note, isn't it? Go and tell them. That he goes into Galilee, there ye shall see him as he said unto you. Doesn't say, go tell him he's risen. No, go and find him in Galilee. Interesting. Why would that be? It's because Jesus had said this in Mark 14 as well. Another breadcrumb Mark leaves earlier. We got the anointing earlier. We get this breadcrumb earlier. It says, all ye, plural, ye is plural, right? All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Now hear these words. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. And so these are Jesus is picking up what he has promised to do and reminding them in that command, he rose. He's linking these two things. And notice, particularly in this, it says, tell his disciples and Peter. Peter. It was Peter who would right after that account in Mark 14 say, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Well, we know it came true. All the disciples fled. Peter flat out denied Jesus three times. So what's the link with the disciples' failure and Galilee? Why Galilee? What's going on here? Well, it was in Galilee that Jesus first called four fishermen to be his disciples. And now the risen Christ would go there again to that same place to draw these scattered disciples together. Where he began the ministry of his followers, he would continue the ministry, but now with a new transition, a transition of eternal salvation. It was in Galilee that Peter would be confronted about his denial, and it was severe. It was personal And it was his pride that motivated it. And now this humbled Peter is singled out with mercy. If proud Peter can be singled out in this text, I think there's so much hope for us. Broken, feeble, proud people to experience the same grace that Jesus gave to Peter. 
Because perhaps it's you that's wandering. Perhaps it's you whose love for Jesus has been wavering and challenged. Perhaps you came this morning and you know you failed Jesus Christ. You've, you've proclaimed him and you failed. Oh, see the love in that statement, particularly towards Peter. See the love of the resurrected Christ. And it's interesting. He commands his followers. He commands his church. He calls the church in her weakness to come. He calls them and shows them mercy. There's another thing that we see in this, this instruction of the risen Lord. He gives the rules. He calls the shots. Sometimes we think we should determine how the church should be run. Sometimes we think, and we don't say it this way, but we we imagine it this way. We think, well, we're God's gift to the church. Now, we can think that way very easily. And pride is one of those things, as Gurnall would say, is like a womb that begets a whole litter of sins. No, we see from the outset that Jesus leads his church. Jesus calls her his way with his word. He's the only master. We are Mathetes, disciples, followers. We follow, we don't lead, don't presume that leadership. Verse 8, it's interesting what they do. It says they go out quickly and fleed, fl- flee Sorry, from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Not a word is spoken to anyone. They were told to go to the disciples And we know from other gospel accounts, they went to the disciples and told it to them. But Mark doesn't emphasize that at all. Mark is interested in another angle. He doesn't talk about any of their proclamation to the disciples. He just emphasizes their haste to go away, to not say anything. They were given the message. And for some unknown period of time, it's not told us how long, they didn't dare tell anyone. Up until this point, the apostle, or not the apostle, Mark here, shows us that it's always the male disciples, the followers, the male disciples, who were portrayed as blundering, messing up. But now the women, the first witnesses, they would also mess up. They, in fear, fail Christ as well. Craig Keener says this, throughout Mark, people spread news that they were supposed to keep quiet. And here, when they were finally commanded to spread the word, people keep quiet. We are simply left in this account to humbly recognize that as much as we want to be perfect witnesses, as much as we want to share the gospel exactly how we ought, we're still broken witnesses. We're still people of failure but we announce a perfect Savior. I'm going to sum up 9 through 14 really quickly here. Notice the theme. Verse 9. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared. Keep those appearances in mind. Notice the progression will lead towards the disciples. First he appears to a female witness. And the response of the disciples, verse 11, they believed her not. Then he appears to two men. The Bible says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. The response of the disciples, verse 13, Neither believed they them. Finally, Jesus appears directly to the disciples. 
Now they have personal eyewitness testimony themselves of the resurrected Christ. Do you think Jesus is happy with them? That they didn't believe the women, the woman in this case in verse 9, Mary Magdalene, they didn't believe the two. No, he abrades them. He rebukes them. He chastises them because they didn't believe the witness of the others. There's the take home for us this morning. What will you do with the witness of Jesus that was given by another, that is recorded in Holy Scripture? What will you do with it? Do you need Jesus to appear straight to you? The Bible chastises that. And it says to believe the account as it has been given. The women saw everything. The angel plainly declared it. The man on the road to Emmaus communed with him. The disciples finally saw him. 1 Corinthians says that he appeared to more than 500 people alive at the same time. They could validate that witness. The apostle Paul saw the risen Lord. And dear people, the Bible says this, that one day the risen Christ will come back. And then it says these words. And every eye shall see him. But at that time, the decision will already be made. Today, you have a decision to make. What will I do with the testimony of the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, today? For then he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we thank you for the word. We thank you for the testimony. It is sufficient. Lord, may we believe the word. May we hold fast in the word. And may we know that when we labor in your kingdom, we do not labor in vain. Oh Lord, we thank you for the risen Savior in his name. Amen.